1: I'm Damian Bulwa. Today on Fifth Admission, the story of the Oakland Police Department, from the Riders scandal to the recent firing of Police Chief LaRon Armstrong. For nearly two decades, longer than any other police force, OPD has been operating under federal court oversight. That's the result of a lawsuit brought by victims of the Riders, a group of officers accused of beating and framing numerous people in West Oakland. To end this court oversight, the department has to improve the way it trains, supervises, and disciplines officers. But all these years later, those reforms are still not complete. Chiefs and mayors have come and gone. Oakland taxpayers have spent tens of millions of dollars. And while the department has improved in many ways, scandals continue to surface. Now the failings of Oakland's force are the subject of a new book called The Riders Come Out at Night. It's by two local journalists, Ali Winston and my guest today, Darwin Bongram. Bongram is news editor at the community-centered nonprofit Oaklandside and has covered issues of police brutality and accountability for more than 20 years. Darwin, welcome to Fifth and Mission.
2: Yeah, thanks for the invitation.
1: Darwin, I want to start with this. Oakland Mayor Sheng Tao, last month you've covered this story. She fired Police Chief Laurent Armstrong. What does that decision have to do with the fact that the police force in Oakland is still under federal court oversight?
2: Yeah, that decision, there's a lot of gravity behind it, right? I think in the background, what was happening was, you know, the federal court monitor had gotten wind of this caper, if you want to call it that, involving this sergeant who had, you know, gotten in a hit and run, shot his gun off in an elevator. People in the department and some people in the city didn't feel that the investigation into what the sergeant did was being handled properly. I think some of them tipped off the monitor. The monitor hired this outside law firm who began investigating. And the outside law firm came to the conclusion that the chief, Armstrong, was culpable in many respects of allowing this officer to get away with this misconduct. He was uh, derelict in his duties. So the question all along was, with those findings made public, what would the city do with them? And in Oakland, you know, the police commission has the power to fire the chief and the mayor has the power to fire the chief. And I think in the background, the monitor was watching the city to see what it would do based on the conclusions that the chief engaged in serious misconduct. I think had the mayor or the police commission not taken action to fire the chief, the monitor might have stepped in and fired the chief. And that would have been really bad news for the city because, you know, the federal reform program in Oakland, it's not just about fixing the police department. In a bigger sense, it's about fixing the city and the city's ability to hold its police accountable.
1: And Darwin, I mean, in a city that's not under this reform program, maybe a chief survives a single internal affairs case like this.
2: Yeah, in a city that's not under this kind of federal oversight, the captain of internal affairs would improperly downgrade the hit and run to, you know, a quote unquote preventable collision and the officer gets counseling and training and that's it. Of course, then that same officer shot his gun off in an elevator, and that was a little harder to deal with.
1: And what do you make of former Chief Armstrong's defense? I mean, first he said he did nothing wrong, and that's a reference to him not knowing about this case and having his command staff handle it. But more so, he says that there is an inertia in the city where people that are involved in the reform program, especially the monitor, Robert Warshaw, want to keep getting paid
2: that's a refrain that you that we hear a lot these days. I, I think we've been hearing it um, ever since the tenure of the previous chief and Kirkpatrick. It's definitely an idea that many people in the police department have that the federal oversight is unfair and that Robert Warshaw, who gets this team of individuals who work through his private consulting company, I think they get paid around seven hundred thousand dollars a year to handle oversight of the department and report to the federal judge who oversees them. So the idea is Warshaw doesn't have any incentive to find the department ever in compliance with the reforms. Armstrong came out publicly and accused the monitor of corruption. Stepping back, you know, Warshaw, he's the monitor for several law enforcement agencies that are under similar consent decrees. He was the monitor in Detroit, And he is currently, I think, the monitor in Maricopa County in Arizona. Some of those agencies have come out of federal oversight. Detroit came out of federal oversight in 2014, partly because Warshaw signed off on it, said, you know, there's still some problems here, but they've made incredible progress. So the idea that Warshaw is keeping Oakland under oversight just to collect a paycheck, I I don't know. Why didn't he do the same thing in Detroit, you know, or, or in these other cases? I'm not sure.
1: Has Warshaw ever responded to that?
2: Yeah, Warshaw's an interesting character in this whole drama. He doesn't really talk to the press. I've never been able to interview him. He speaks through his filings that he makes to the federal judge.
1: I want to get to the book, Darwin. You write that Oakland is the edge case in American law enforcement. Obviously, there's so much going on in the police reform movement. What do you mean by edge case?
2: We meant that in a couple ways. One is that more has been done in Oakland by the residents of the city, by civil rights attorneys, by the elected leadership, and sometimes by the police themselves to try to reform and change policing. There's more pushback against policing in Oakland than arguably any other city in the U.S. And that's, you know, for a lot of reasons. OPD is also a you know, notably troubled department. It's had just really massive and, and disturbing scandals over many decades. And so if you take Oakland as a case study, it does have a lot to say about other American cities and and problems that their police departments face.
1: I mean, the whole theme of the book, I think, attempts to answer this question. But if you can boil it down, why do they keep failing to get out of, of court oversight?
2: If you placed any police agency in the United States under a similar consent decree with similar requirements. There's 52. They span all sorts of stuff in the department from supervision of officers to how internal affairs cases are handled. But also, uh, I think starting in 2012, the judge who oversaw it at the time, Felton Henderson, you know, he said, to really make this happen, I'm going to expand the powers of the monitor to make sure that everything in the department is fair game for transformation. And so they took on this notion of cultural transformation We need to change the culture of policing in Oakland in order to fulfill the consent decree. I think if you did that to any police department in the U.S., they would have a lot of trouble because policing as an institution in the United States is a really troubled institution. It's called upon to respond to some of the most pressing crises of like poverty and violence in our society. And it doesn't have the toolkit to do it in a way that a lot of the people in the United States want to be done. So it's not Oakland that's failing, really. I mean, it literally is in the sense that Oakland can't get out from under this federal oversight. But it's more a sense that, you know, the institutional policing as a whole is flawed.
1: You spend so much time talking about pendulum swings. I mean, presidents come and go, mayors come and go, the very mood of Oakland voters comes and goes. I mean, how much is that a part of what Oakland is dealing with here?
2: Right now, Oakland, like the rest of the country the pendulum is swinging away from police reform and toward this kind of traditional demand for law and order but yeah if you go back in time over the years like that pendulum has swung back and forth in really big ways in Oakland i think in the 1980s and the 1990s in Oakland and i mean you did a lot of reporting on what was going on in Oakland back in the days like that was an extremely violent city there were guns pouring in there were uh, some very large criminal organizations um And so the residents of Oakland were very much in favor of a robust police department that could respond to that kind of stuff. That's kind of what led to, you know, Jerry Brown, for example, running on a platform of cracking down on crime in Oakland. Um, But then you see the pendulum, it swings back and forth. And like uh, just recently, the election of, you know, a progressive mayor and a progressive city council. And we saw a city council that literally voted in aspirational terms to try to slash the police budget in half. They didn't do it, of course. They gave the police an actual budget increase, but the politics are just kind of wild in terms of, you know, the ups and downs of what people want from the public safety system and how they want the police to be a part of that.
1: Darwin, I want to take a quick break. When we come back on Fifth and Mission, more with Darwin Bongram talking about the Oakland Police Department and its efforts to reform itself. We'll be right back
0: you're listening to 5th and Mission. If you have a comment or there's a story you think we should cover, let us know. You can email us at 5th, that's F-I-F-T-H, at sfchronicle.com, or leave us a voicemail at 415-777-6156. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: Welcome back to Fifth and Mission. I'm Damian Bolwa. I'm joined by Darwin Von Graham. He is the news editor at Oakland side, he is the author of The Writers Come Out at Night, a new book on OPD. Darwin, let's talk about the book. One of the central characters is named Keith Bat. He was a rookie officer who spoke out about the things he was seeing in his first days on the job. Tell us about the writers and, and who is Keith Batt?
2: Yeah, the riders, they weren't like a specialized squad or anything. These were like patrol officers who were tasked with answering calls for service in and around Oakland, especially West Oakland. And they were the like overnight kind of shift into the early hours of the morning. But they were the types of officers who were very proactive. And in that sense, they were very popular and loved in the department. They wanted to go out there and actually like enforce the law in the way that they saw fit. So they would often get together in this informal group and, you know, say, borrow one of the undercover minivans that the department had and cruise around West Oakland looking for people who they suspected were involved in the narcotics trade at the time or who might have firearms on them. And then they would jump out on these people, chase them down if they ran and arrest them. What ended up happening was this rookie officer, Keith Bat, who had just graduated from the academy. You have to go through field training um, to become a full police officer.
1: It's almost impossible not to think of Training Day, the movie, when you're talking about this.
2: It literally is Training Day. And so Keith is assigned to this field training officer, Chuck Mabanig, a very tough officer who, you know, in his own words, he views Oakland as a very dangerous place where you can't be like a police officer and not be proactive. You've got to be physical with people You've got to know that your life is on the line and you got to protect your partners and stuff. So they're going around West Oakland. And what Keith starts observing is that the riders appear to be lying on police reports about what happened, dropping drugs on the ground and pretending to find them to then stick people with a drug possession charge. And then there's the violence, his field training officer and these other officers are just beating suspects up, oftentimes quite brutally and and seemingly unnecessary. Keith laid it all out for internal affairs. That became the writer's case. And so these four officers in particular, they were fired from the department. And then the Alameda County District Attorney brought criminal charges against them, put them on trial twice, I think. And those trials resulted Mostly in hung juries, the juries couldn't decide whether or not the officers were guilty. I think the final trial, one of the officers, Matthew Hornung, was um, acquitted. So
1: the story of Keith Bat, by the way, this is one of the first times he's spoken is to you guys for this book. I mean, what does it say about whistleblowers? He had to leave the department.
2: Yeah, he had to leave the department whistleblowers in law enforcement. This is this is kind of a universal story is um, once you sort of like tell on your fellow officers, you're sort of expelled from the brotherhood, as it were, and you have a target on your back for the rest of your life. And if you stay in law enforcement, it can be a pretty lonesome place.
1: I wanted to ask you about whether you've gotten any pushback on the book. You're very tough on the police department, obviously, and, and the city's leaders. I imagine some might say, hey, this is a very tough job. Police officers, in hindsight, aren't always going to make perfect decisions in very dangerous circumstances. Is there a danger of overlooking how chaotic and difficult these use of force decisions can be?
2: I think that's a fair point and a fair question. Um, Policing is a very difficult job, and we live in a very violent society. It's a washing guns, and there's a lot of poverty and a lot of inequality. And so like the sociological underpinnings that create the phenomenon we call crime guarantee that there's going to be a lot of crime in our society. And then rather than dealing with those root causes through investments in social programs and so forth, the liberal critique of policing says we invest in police, which are like a bandaid. They go out and address this stuff. You know, one could tell a lot of positive stories about policing, right? When there is a heinous crime that happens, it's the police often who like have to deal with a lot of the fallout from that. They have to investigate it, figure out what happened. They've got to respond to shootings. They've got to respond to all manner of like violent crime and horrible stuff that's happening in the city. I think what Ali and I tried to do with this book, and, and this is this is a flaw inherent in journalism, right? We like to focus on problems because it's important that collectively we solve problems. And so our book focuses on the problem of policing. And it, yeah, we don't accentuate any of the positives, the good stories. We dwell almost entirely on the, on the negative stuff. And so I think if people were to like pick up our book and read it and think that this is the one and only thing I need to know about policing or the one and only thing I need to know about Oakland or OPD, it would not be a complete picture.
1: So bringing us up to the present, there's an incredible quote at the end of the book about Keith Bat, where you say he was surprised to find over the years that it was he who was scapegoated and expelled from the Brotherhood of Policing. And the last chapter in the book is titled Backsliding. How would you characterize the current state of OPD? And is there hope to be found in this long journey?
2: You know, the thing about BAT being like scapegoated, that gets to the uh, cultural issues uh, in policing. And those are really hard to solve. Like, you know, um, a consent decree can create policies. And when the department shows that it can implement those policies, it gets to check the box. But beneath the surface, if there are still some toxic and dysfunctional cultural aspects to policing, then you're always going to run into problems because once you take away the external pressure that's holding to account the police, then the worst, the sort of worst of them like reemerges. And um, again, this is the former chief Ann Kirkpatrick. She was highly praised in many ways. She lifted the morale of the department. But objectively on paper, she caused the department to fall out of compliance with multiple key tasks in the NSA. And so there's culture and there's leadership. And those are a couple pieces of the puzzle that were sort of failing in recent years. So OPD did backslide in some pretty big ways. I mean, really bringing it up to the present. One of the more interesting and and unfortunate things about the current Scandal or whatever you want to call it with um, Chief Armstrong being fired, is that Armstrong, up until that moment, appeared to be a good leader and sort of bringing about some of the cultural changes that are being called upon in the department, making it more diverse, being open to criticism, trying to reduce this like macho attitude where you know use of force is condoned and and secrecy and stuff. So they appeared to be on the path to, you know, resolving the NSA this year. And then a sergeant got into trouble, hit and run, shooting in an elevator. And for whatever reason, it appears that very high-ranking people handled it in a totally inappropriate way. The failure of internal affairs to hold officers accountable has always been one of the core things about reforming policing in Oakland. It's, It's one of the keys to the... The consent decree.
1: So overall, Darwin, has this reform movement made OPD better?
2: Yes. Now, a lot of people want to say, you know, police remain uh, really problematic in Oakland. And it's true. There are big problems with policing in Oakland. But if you just objectively look at uh, the Oakland Police Department today and compare it to the department it was 20 years ago, there's a lot of ways in which they've gotten a lot better they kill far fewer people and i know this is a weird this is a weird metric right but like it matters that there's like a dozen or so people not being shot by police every year compared to like 20 years ago use of force is way down there are far fewer people who are stopped simply for like driving while black in oakland anymore now That said, racial profiling may still be occurring in Oakland and black people are still stopped at hugely disproportionate rates in Oakland, but it's a lot less than it used to be. So it's sort of a matter of like, it's not that the department is like great today. It's that they're a lot less bad than they used to be, if that makes sense. And I think recognizing that is important because the story of policing reform in Oakland isn't one where the police woke up one day and were like, let's do right, let's make this better. And it's certainly not one where the political leadership, you know, the city council never stepped in and said, we've got to do this right. Can't really find a mayor in the last 20 years who was like, I'm going to achieve this. It's not those individuals or organizations that are responsible for this progress. It's the people of Oakland. If if you actually look at the history, it's the, the protest movements, the civil rights attorneys, the civic organizations doing the hard work of like trying to push to hold the police accountable and make the city government better. And I think if you don't recognize that policing has improved in Oakland, it's sort of discounting the work, the hard work that those individuals have done over the years.
1: Darwin Bongram, thank you so much.
2: Thanks. This was a pleasure.
1: Thanks to my guest today. He's Darwin Bongram along with Ollie Winston. He's the author of the new book, The Writers Come Out at Night. He's also a news editor at Oaklandside, the community-centered nonprofit. Thanks also to Francesca Fenzi for producing this episode, and thank you for
2: listening.